Hi, that girl here today with Dr. Danny McBeady, who's the co-founder of Lap of Love. Dr. McBeady, thank you so much for joining us today for today's Vet Girl podcast. Yes, thank you, Justine. So excited to be able to interview you, Danny, because I know what you do is so pivotal in the veterinary world. So first of all, for those of you who aren't familiar with Dr. Danny McBeady, do you mind just giving us a little bit of background about yourself and introducing yourself? Yes, absolutely. So I graduated the University of Florida College of Veterinary Medicine in uh, 2009. So over the past eight years, I went from being an uh, emergency room clinician to kind of evolving into something that I just have found this immense amount of passion in, which is end of life care in the veterinary field. And really kind of taken this space within our profession that not much education existed in before. And, um, and, and for whatever reason, it has, it has turned into an, a completely unique part of our profession and something that's now gaining immense amount of attention, again, not only within our field, but outside of our field as well as pets become more and more important in our families. And tell me how you went about starting Lap of Love. Obviously, it's super stressful to start an LLC or a small business, so I have a ton of respect for women who do this or anyone who does this. So do you mind just telling us a little bit about that? Gosh, yes. And, and, you know, just like any, any real business that, that lives from the why, you know, the, the why of, of what's kind of started this and the passion behind it, um, it was really simply just about solving a problem that I saw was um, existed within my interactions between the clients and then myself as a doctor within the emergency room. So um, I, I graduated, just a little bit of a backstory, I, I, I volunteered for um, human hospice when I was at college. And I had no idea kind of really how that was going to fit in my life. But at the time, I had never really experienced any big losses or anything. So for whatever reason, I had read a book about somebody else doing this. And I thought that that was going to be a great idea. So I was 18, 19 years old in, um, in college. And I decided to go volunteer for human hospice. And it changed my view of medicine. Because in, in human hospice, you know, what, what they do is they give the patient those last few rights of choices that they have. And so when you're there as a volunteer, you are there to simply serve that patient. And if they want to sit outside, if they want to stay inside, if they want to talk or not talk or, you know, um, go have you pick up a, a magazine for them, like whatever it is, you are there to serve them and, and to allow them to have choices. And the other thing that human hospice does from the medical side is it embraces sickness and death, not as a failure of medicine, but instead as the natural progression of biology. And it's very, very different than what we're taught in medical school. So in medical school, you know, we're taught to fight, 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 cure, 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 war on cancer, we're going to beat this disease. And it's this very kind of, you know, aggressive standpoint towards disease, which we should have, you know, we should have that passion against fighting something that we want our pets to get over. And I remember one time it was about two o'clock in the morning and I'm about a month out of school in the ER. Um, and I'm in the, the operating room, you know, trying to, to get this GDV, this gastric dilatation volvulus, you know, untwisted and tack it down. And, and I remember I was so proud of myself for learning this stuff on my own and, and really sitting through this in, in the OR. And sometimes you don't have an assistant in, in the middle of the night. So I was doing this and I remember that this, this fight was coming up in me. I kept having this like fire in my, in my stomach of like, I'm going to get through this. I'm going to fight. And this thing, this is, this is this moment washed over me where I thought to myself, what am I fighting against? I'm sitting here fighting and fighting and fighting. And, and where do I not feel that fight in medicine? And keep in mind, again, I'm just a weeks out of school at this point. 
And I started realizing over the next, um, you know, the, 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 those first few weeks, how much fulfillment I was getting through walking people through the end of life decision making process. And of course, I got a lot of fulfillment out of making, out of, out of walking people through any decision making process in emergency medicine, which, you know, sometimes they are in our, our emergency room because the current situation is not sustainable, right? That's why they got up in the middle of the night to bring their, their dog or cat to you. So they may not want to make a decision, yet they know that they have to. And I started um, really tapping into some, some communication resources that I love. And, you know, I joke that if, if, uh, if this whole veterinary thing doesn't work out for me, I want to be an FBI negotiator because I just, I love the whole communication side of, of what we do. So I would bounce people between extremes and I would always end up at the end of the day, finding the thing that had them feel the most comfortable. And of course was within the realm of, of medicine that I was able to provide. And one aspect of that was, um, was hospice care. And of course, emergency, um, or I'm sorry, of course, euthanasia as well. Um, so there was this one woman that came in to the clinic one day and she had her little uh, chihuahua wrapped in a blanket. And she kept a chihuahua on her blanket and, um, and she said, you know, she was requesting euthanasia and the little guy was definitely time for him. And she looked at me and she said, is there any way you can just leave him on my lap? I don't want him out of my lap this entire time. And of course we're taught in veteran in, uh, in medical school to take them into the back and place an IV catheter and then bring them back into the room and give IV sedation, wait, and then give the second injection and that's it. And I looked at her and I thought to myself, why would I ever deny her what she's asking me? And, and I knew that that was possible. So I sedated the little chihuahua through the blanket. Of course, sterility isn't so much of a concern at this point. Um, sedated him through the blanket. And when he was ready, you know, just after a couple of minutes, I, I used the front leg and I, I gave the euthanasia solution in a butterfly catheter um, and the cephalic. And then right after I gave it, I, I just literally took it out and put his paw right back in, tucked into the blanket with his mom. And just let them sit for, you know, a few seconds. And then, of course, listen to the heart when I was ready. But point is, she walked out of that clinic with her pet wrapped up in her blanket exactly the way she walked in. And I remember thinking to myself, that is what every animal deserves. They all deserve to be in their mom's lap. That, that chihuahua never had to be put under stress, was never taken away from his mom. And that's what they all deserve. And that's why I, I called it lap of love at the, at, at the time. And, and of course, of course, jokingly, you know, we did not have the corner on the, the SEO market in, uh, for the phrase lap of love at that time, many other services would come up if you Googled lap of love, but luckily, you know, now it, it's certainly turned around. Um, but I, I just, I just knew that that's what they all deserved. And I started tapping into my hospice experience as well. And, and of course, keep in mind, this is three months after graduating school, three months after graduating, I'd already started Lap of Love. And I began to kind of offer people this service. And of course, the, the ER clinician that I worked with um, here in Tampa, Florida, Dr. Katie Meyer, she's just amazing. She always told me, she goes, Danny, the pet comes first, then the pet parent, and then anybody else behind them. But the pet always comes first. And so with her telling me that and that voice ringing in, in my ear, I uh, what I would do is someone would come in on a Friday, right? And they already had the diagnosis of congestive heart failure, renal failure. They already knew their pet has a terminal illness, but it was Friday and mom, dad, husband, wife, son, daughter aren't coming home until Saturday or Sunday. And can you please just get him through the weekend so that my husband can be with you, be here with me for the euthanasia. And I started realizing that that is what hospice care is in veterinary medicine. 
that is what it is, is of course I can comatose a dog, you know, for a couple of days. I mean, I can do whatever I, I can push the boundaries on pain medicine. I can push the boundaries on what I should and should not be doing because as long as that pet is comfortable for those finite amount of minutes or days that, that I need to, to do to honor that family's wishes, that's what I'm going to do hundred percent. So I just started doing things like, you know, pushing the boundaries on pain medicine and sending a pet home with a rented oxygen machine that I can, that I could use. Of course, you know, this is within the boundaries of what's sufferable and not, but, but most pets, uh, you know, you can, you can mitigate suffering enough for that pet to be comfortable and at home for a finite amount of time. So the, the service just really evolved from, from, uh, from just saying the word hospice in the ER and, and giving people that, that levity of time and me working with them within their boundaries that, that they're asking me to, to work within. And it was immensely fulfilling for me um, as a doctor. The clients absolutely love it. I think that they knew that, that I was listening to them and I was able to give them the answers that, that they wanted within the boundaries of medicine. And the service kept growing and growing and growing. And within a year, I, um, I contacted a classmate of mine and uh, Dr. Mary Gardner, and I asked her if she could help me build a practice management software and that this service was going to be scalable. So we did. We did that. And she came on board with me. Um, we built our practice management software. And to make a very long story short, within you know the past um, seven years, we franchised the company and then we tailored back on the franchising part um, because now we know how to, how to make it work. And now we have over 100 doctors that work with us around the country. And um, we will eclipse Gosh, we will probably eclipse helping over 60,000 families since we began um, here this month. So that is so amazing. Yeah, pretty cool. So, you know, a lot of veterinarians don't know a lot about hospice because we're not taught that in veterinary medicine at all. And, you know, we're really fortunate in veterinary medicine compared to human medicine that we have the, the gift of euthanasia. So do you hit any resistance in the veterinary community when it comes to the evolution of hospice within veterinary medicine? Because I can only imagine people are thinking, oh, it's, you know, patients that are cachectic at home that should have been euthanized earlier. What issues are you hitting uh, when it comes to resistance and what can we do to combat that? Yeah, no, you're exactly right. And that, that's why Mary and I are both very, very passionate about doing um, speaking and writing within our profession, because it's it's not a push to get the consumers to understand what veterinary hospice and, and you know, the, the value of, of euthanasia can be. They already understand it. It's really a matter of getting our profession to understand what veterinary hospice is and most importantly, what it is not. So a lot of the times you know, when we first started, we would hear things like, well, you're extending suffering of the pet. I just don't believe in that. Or I don't believe in having the, the families pay for more things when we should just be euthanizing sooner. You know, and, and it's it's really amazing because we used to hear that at the beginning, but now we really don't because I, I believe that our profession is really starting to grasp the value of, of what this is. So it, and it's, it's a different thing between your client feeling like they don't want to go back into the clinic because they're worried about being talked into more diagnostics and them coming back into the clinic and requesting hospice care because they don't want any more diagnostics. I can't tell you how many times I hear from clients, no, I didn't go back to my regular veterinarian for the past six months because I don't want him to talk me into more treatment. And the fascinating thing is that our profession has been doing hospice care for generations. We've, we're we really not doing anything that vastly different than what we've been doing. We're just calling it something different, which is we're calling it hospice care. And we're saying that to the clients earlier so that the clients know that they're not going to be talked into more diagnostic care. 
Um, I actually had one uh, practice in my area here when I first started. Um, and of course, keep in mind, you know, we started here in Tampa, Florida, and there was no one like this at the time. And I had one of his technicians call me and say, hey, would you please come to my home to do endometheanasia? So I went and she goes, you know, I wish Dr. So-and-so would, would let us give out your number. And, and of course, I'm like less than six months out of starting this service at the time. And I go, well, why, why do you think he won't? And he goes, she goes, because I think that he thinks that you're competing against him. And I was like, oh my gosh, I wish, you know, I, I wish he, I wish he wouldn't see it that way. I wish he would see how important it is to have a peaceful euthanasia experience. And, and that, that can be done in the clinic as well. But, um, but it's certainly not a competition. So the, the fascinating thing is that he is now one of my most important referrals in the Tampa Bay area, because it really just took a couple of times of, of a, a general practitioner hearing from their client how important it was to have a peaceful end of life experience, even if that is just a simple communication, because this is all I do. So I can talk a family through this decision-making process in a way that's that's highly specialized simply because it's all that I do. And the most important thing about this is, is that taking that, that negative experience outside of the clinic is absolutely invaluable to that person returning to your clinic when they've opened their heart and homes to another pet. And they all of a sudden they don't have don't take into exam room two written on the, the chart. They don't have a negative experience with that. They don't they don't pull into your parking lot. Remember the time that remembering that the time that they pulled in the parking lot with their pet the last time, and it was the last time that they got to see their animal. You know, all of a sudden it's it's this it's this positive place that the clinic gets to be instead of something that's a negative experience and the family just can't can never get past it. So even though there is a little bit of friction, you know, that exists in, in the beginning when somebody first hears that phrase, you know, veterinary hospice, um, if you're at all interested in it and at all open to listening to, to what it is, everybody, 100% of the people that, that, um, that are open to it understand what we do and how valuable it is to maintaining that human-animal bond and keeping, it, keeping that, that part of the pet ownership of Velcro between the end of life and the beginning of that next life. That's great. Do you mind telling us what are your top five go-to drugs or therapies when it comes to hospice? I know for me, I always joke in the ER, I could not survive my outpatient therapy without sub-Q fluids, carprofen, and metronidazole. <laughs> but, oh, God. Uh, yeah. What, what things that you use most commonly in hospice to help some of these patients? Yes, absolutely. So, so just strictly talking about the hospice part of it, I can tell you that I, I wish all my patients were on gabapentin much earlier particularly about 70% of the pets that are over 50 pounds have not been to the regular veterinarian in over six months and are not on any NSAIDs at all. And again, that goes back to them not wanting to go back to their veterinarian because they don't want to be talked into more stuff. And they won't go get a refill of carprofen because they think that, that, that their veterinarian is going to make them do a blood draw, you know, instead of saying, look, let's just do, you know, there, there's a different way of doing this. And I know every veterinarian is going to have their own boundaries as far as what they're willing to do and what they're not willing to do. So yeah, a couple of, of medications, gabapentin, uh, Dr. Robin Downing says that she thinks gabapentin should just be in the water, that it's that fabulous. <laughs> so I love that. And then of course, NSAIDs. And even though tramadol does not add a lot of pain, uh, you know, uh, pain properties, we get that. But the way, the reason why I like using tramadol so much is because we're seeing these patients at the very, very end. I'm not seeing them at the beginning when I wish I could see them. And human hospice was the same way. Human hospice walks into a room and all the time you talk to any human hospice nurse and they say, gosh, I wish I would have seen you six months ago. I could have done so much for you, you know, to get through this, this, this time. So if I'm seeing them earlier, I would love to do like the acetaminophen with codeine and then NSAIDs 
um, gabapentin for sure. And the way that I use tramadol in hospice care is that I use it as a rescue medication. And that's what, what I, I tell people in, um, that if we're going to go through some nights and we already know that the evenings are getting more difficult, I'll tell them that, look, tramadol is like a glass of wine. Sometimes you need one or two glasses of wine, and sometimes you need three or four glasses of wine. So let's take the dose that you've already been given. We're, we can up that dose three or four or five times if we need to. But if we're doing that, we have a quality of life issue to begin with, and I need you to call me the next day because we're not a 24-hour service. Um, so we can't always come out in the middle of the night. So if we need to get through the middle of the night, tramadol is going to get us through, but we need to have a conversation in, in the middle of the night. So again, it just at least helps that pet be calm and comfortable if we need to. With cats, of course, there's um, uh, transmucosal buprenex, you know, all that, all that normal stuff that, that, that we already know about. Um, I do a lot, a lot of compounding because these dogs and cats aren't eating and you can't get these medications into them easy, um, easily. And the most important part of it is maintaining that human animal bond. So I don't want them, you know, chasing around their dog, trying to give them sub Q fluids if the dog is going to freak out. Or I don't want them, you know, chasing around their cat, trying to give them um, transmucosal buprenex if the cat doesn't want any or if it makes them vomit. So it's really about what, what we can give the pet to keep keep them comfortable for as long as possible. I'm going to agree with you. I love gabapentin. I use it on my 19-year-old cat, and it's such a great pain reliever. It's great for osteoarthritis, and it's a great sedative for fractious cats, you know, before they actually go into the clinic. So couldn't agree with you more on that on that choice. And I know a lot of veterinarians are starting to use a lot more methadone or even codeine with acetaminophen. Uh, so definitely great analgesic options out there. What are one or two mistakes that you see veterinarians making when it comes to communication about hospice? Absolutely. Okay. I'm going to give you, I, I, I could go on and on about this topic. So I would say that the, the first one, the first mistake is the uh, underdosing some of these medications, just like you said, and I won't spend too much time on that, but I'll go into a, a home and, and tramadol has been completely underdosed and these families aren't getting through the night and their dog's whining, crying, you know, pacing, panting all throughout the night. And they don't know that they can give a little bit more just to help their pet calm down a little bit. But the other thing, just go getting strictly to communication. There's a few phrases that I hope I can get out of the veterinary profession. And the first one is call me when you're ready. This call me when you're ready thing, it just bugs the heck out of me because clients don't know when they're ready. And then they never call you because they don't know when they're ready. And you said, call me when you're ready, but I'm not ready yet. And not only that, but I don't know when I am supposed to be ready or you'll know, you know, that's another one. You'll know, listen, even for our own pets, Mary and I will talk in front of thousands and thousands of veterinarians and I'll ask them, how many of you knew for sure with your own pet, you knew it was the right time. Maybe one or two people out of thousand will answer, will, will, will raise their hand. I said that right there, one or two out of a thousand. And I bet you, if I asked the one or two, that's because there was active suffering going on, which is something we want to prevent in the first place, then that's, re that is reflective of. Of, uh, of, of our clients as well. Almost all of them don't know when it, it's time. They have no idea. So instead, what I, what I hope we can start to say to our clients is call me when you're ready to have that discussion with me. That's all I need you to do is be open to the discussion. And it should never be the client that brings up euthanasia first. My clients don't practice veterinary medicine. I do. They should not be requesting you know, euthanasia. I don't go to my neurologist and request an MRI. You go to a neurologist and say, my back hurts, what do I do? And then he tells us what we do. You, so they, the, the client should be coming to you and say, I can't do this anymore. Something's wrong. I don't know what to do. My, my pet is in pain a lot. I, I just don't know what to do. And then you get to decide if euthanasia is, is something that, that's, that we can bring up. And I think it should always be the veterinarian that brings up euthanasia first. Even if that client freaks out at that moment, 
they know that you have given them permission to have that conversation. So they may say, how dare you bring up euthanasia now? That's never an option for me. I'm not giving up. But yet at two o'clock in the morning, when that pet is screaming in pain, or they peed on the ground for the 19th time and their spouse is yelling at them to please do something about this, they know that you have given them permission to have the conversation. So the other phrase that I hope we can get out of this profession is you are making the right decision. Like I said, my, pl- my clients do not practice veterinary medicine. They are making no decisions. I am making the decision. And this has to do with, with you know, what the goal of euthanasia is, at least for lack of love, is that, um, you know, of course, we're, we're the greatest gift that we can give our, our, our patient is the relief of pain and suffering. But the greatest gift we can give the client is the release of that guilt. And removing this phrase of you are doing the right thing helps release that guilt from them. Because the other things that they will say is, is, you know, I don't want to sign my death warrant for my pet, or I don't want to make the decision, or I don't want to play God. And my response to all of those is, you're not, I am. You're not doing anything. I'm the one pushing the plunger. I'm the one giving this medication. I'm the one who went through eight plus years of education to get where I'm at. And I've done this thousands of times. You're going to go through this maybe a handful of times in your entire life. So you need to understand that you're not doing anything. And if I didn't feel that this was the very best thing we could possibly do at this moment, then I wouldn't do it at all. So you get to have confidence in me and and simply partner with me in this decision because I'm not going to do it if you're not comfortable doing this, of course. But we both also need to understand what the ramifications are of doing nothing. Because if, let's assume we have active suffering going on, we can say, look, we the current cessation, the current situation is not sustainable. We both agree that this cannot continue. So we're either going to make this decision or we need to, to rush him to the back into the ER so that we can mitigate this pain and suffering as much as possible. But remember that death is not an if, it's a when. So we get to make the decision whether or not we're going to do this in a peaceful, calm, loving capacity that we have right now. We have that opportunity to make that decision right now. But if it gets too long, if we wait too late, that decision is going to be taken from you and, and you, you won't have a choice anymore. It'll either be in, in sustained suffering and we're going to be rushing through the euthanasia process, which is not peaceful. Or, you know, if we can do this ahead of time, then we get to make the decision if you want to sit in the backyard at sunset and everyone toast with, with you know, a, a glass of wine or a shot of whiskey. And then I give the, 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 the medication. Like, that's possible. But if we wait too long, that won't be possible anymore. So I feel way too many times we're, we're putting this decision on, on the client when it should not ever be on the client. It is all the client needs to do. The only thing they need to do is be open to having the discussion with us and then partner with us in, in the decision-making process, but it should not be their decision alone. You bring up such a great point. A lot of veterinarians are really hesitant to bring up the term euthanasia when really half the time I found in the ER, that's what the pet owner actually wants to hear, but they're too embarrassed to bring it up. So really great point. It is. It's amazing. It's incredible. They, they are. They're embarrassed and they just want permission. They literally just want permission. And I think that's one of the reasons why Lap of Love is done so well as we have is, is simply because there's not as much of, a, of an embracing of that word in the practice. And so then the client is going out and looking for it on our own. I mean, that's just a small part, a small part of our growth, obviously, but, but even, even still, it's still marrying my, you know, one of our passions is to try to get that change. It's one of the reasons why I talk at the school so much as well, because I, I want them to, I want them to feel comfortable saying that, you know, and what it is. And, and we, we tend to forget that we are the only medical profession licensed to do this. So we need to be embracing it and embracing it, 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 it confidently, not shyly, 
um, and making sure that that we're saying it in a way that has the family feel that we don't shy away from this, that we're confident in what we're doing and we're going to do it at the right time. Great information. I also, I'm sure you read this, but I'm also a huge advocate that all family members should read the book Being Mortal and mm-hmm. also talk about hospice, end of life decision, and make sure everyone in your family has a living will, which a lot of people don't, which always surprises me. Any last tips you want to leave with us? Gosh, it is. It's, that's so important. You know, the, there's there's three main three main tips I would love to have every veterinarian know about euthanasia. If there's any any three little things I could tell you about euthanasia is number one, love on the pet. So always just just react to that pet during that euthanasia process that has that family know that you love them because every other person in their life has reacted to that pet of like, oh my gosh, he's still alive. He looks awful, you know. So if you as the as the veterinarian can give that 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 pet one more confident uh, compliment that just has that family feel that you have a really good connection with them. The second one is, is acknowledging the decision. So even if it's not the decision that you would make, if, if, if that pet were yours, if you're willing to give the euthanasia solution. So if you said, yes, this is the best option that we have, you must be telling the family that we are doing the best thing. We together are, we are doing the very best thing if you are going to euthanize that pet. So, so not ever euthanizing a pet and letting the family think that you didn't feel that it was the right decision to make. And the last thing is physically touch that person in some way. I know it seems so trivial, but it's not. After a euthanasia, a gentle touch on the hand or on the shoulder or on their elbow, or I mean, I hug everybody. No, not everyone's a hugger. But some type of physical touch is going to convey more empathy and compassion than any words ever will. So those, those three things, complimenting the pet, um, acknowledging the decision, and then physically touching the person will help transform any euthanasia um, experience into the very best that the owner can have. That's such a great point. I live in Minnesota and people have a very big personal space here. And a lot of people don't like to be touched or hugged. Uh, but I found that even during euthanasias, a very gentle hand um, on their arm uh, means a lot to them. It so does, really does. Thank you so much, Danny. This was a fantastic podcast. And for all of you guys who are interested in hospice, please make sure to check out her website at Lap of Love. And again, thank you for all that you're doing to help alleviate uh, suffering out there and also to help promote the human-animal bond. Thank you. Thank you so much, Justine. Appreciate it.